What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Today's episode of the Chase Thomas Podcast could be sponsored by you, yes, you, the listener, through the podcast Patreon page that you can find by clicking the link in this episode's description. However, if supporting the podcast financially is not a possibility, that's totally fine too, especially if you are an Apple Podcast or iTunes listener, because you can leave the show a rating and a review. It's important with the way iTunes works, helps other people find the show, and helps the show continue to grow. So please leave a rating and review. Um, there's another option by Stitcher, which also allows you to do that. And uh, don't forget, there are other ways of listening to the show if you're not an Apple podcast or iTunes listener by heading on over to Google Play. Uh, like I said, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, and wherever else you get your podcast, the Chase Thomas podcast will be there. And lastly, I highly encourage you to check out my website at chasethomaspodcast.com to read me at Medium uh, and to follow me on Twitter at Chase underscore Thomas and to go to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash Chase Thomas writer. Hopefully you're still with me because this is the end of me rambling. All right, let's go. Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, Monday night edition of the Chase Thomas podcast, and I am joined by frequent uh, contributor to the pod. He's also a contributor everywhere else at uh, specifically the Rolling Stone and Sporting News, where he has this great new piece. Uh, I'm talking about the latter at Sporting News on the Cavs and how their new pieces are going to fit next to LeBron. And he's also an editor at the Step Back. It's Scott Rafferty. Scott, good evening. Good evening. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. I uh, it's, a, it's good. But, uh, you know, I'm glad that we had a bunch of NBA stuff. So in one, on one hand, I was kind of overwhelmed at the amount of stuff that I needed to read and watch over the weekend because there was just so much analysis and there was just so much um, going on. And it wasn't even like that crazy of a deadline outside of the Cavs, but it was enough where there was a lot to just dive into and try and get a handle on where everybody stood, specifically the playoff teams post trade deadline. But it, uh, like always, it seems since LeBron's been back, the Cavs stole the show. Yeah, it was definitely funny at the trade deadline. I texted, um, I was texting my editor at Sporting News, Jordan Greer. Um, and initially, when the, the first trade went through, I was like, hey, I'm going to do a breakdown on Larry Nance and how he could fit in if that's cool. Uh, He's like, yeah, that sounds great. Um, I was working on that. And then, like, 20 minutes later, they announced the, the Rodney Hood trade. And I was like, okay, Rodney Hood's probably more important. So I was just focused on him. Uh, and then, like, 30 seconds later, it said, oh, George Hill's also included this deal. So I was like, all right, I'm just going to write a piece about how they all fit in because otherwise, it's just. <laughs> This is getting ridiculous at this point. We still didn't know who else was going to, like, if anyone else was going to be traded. So it was just like, yeah, let's just go with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, outside of that, it wasn't actually that crazy of a deadline. Um, but the Cavs definitely got a lot more interesting. They, you know, it's so, I think the best piece I read so far um, on just looking at what the record is for these teams post uh, trade and before trade and just like thinking about 
how this is going to affect the team and how much because we get wrapped up in the moment right where all this instant reaction is like oh the Cavs are back oh they what how can this i forgot who was the one that said like this actually gives them a chance at being the warriors now and it's just stuff like that it's easy to get lost in things like that with all of these trades because it's exciting they did a lot of stuff the Cavs literally overhauled their roster they took they basically chopped up their entire rotation mid-season and they are just gonna have to figure things out in the fly and do a lot of basic sets and Tyron Lue even talked about that where it's like they have had no time to practice but that obviously didn't inhibit them from beating the hell out of the Celtics on Paul Pierce's day on Sunday but you know I think just with it being a couple days now and 538 has this model where they can adjust what uh, and this doesn't take into account fit and stuff like that but they adjusted um what the Cavs record at the end of the season would be like if they had hood nance clarkson and hill on this team from the get-go and it would still be a 46 win team and i thought that was really really interesting that you know that feels right still not a 51 team but if they had these guys, it would be better. And maybe the fit like with Hood playing off ball and being the second fiddle to LeBron, especially in uh, close games and stuff like that, and George Hill being a much better defender, even at this point in his career, than Isaiah Thomas and Derrick Rose and guys like that, that it would bump him a few wins. But, you know, 46 and 36 sounds about right with this group, especially when you actually look up and down and who's going to be playing. And, you know, I... I think it was the right thing to do, but I also still don't think it really moves the needle for them uh, come the finals. Yeah, the, the interesting thing about the trade for me is that I think, I think first of all, it um, makes the Cavs much better this season, or at this point of the season at least, because clearly things were not working out with the other team. Um, so I think they're better equipped now to kind of compete in the, the Eastern Conference, certainly, and kind of make the finals again. Um it's kind of interesting what's happened to LeBron over the last couple of years, though, when you think about it. Because I think the initial plan was, uh, you know, he, he comes back to Cleveland. Um, he kind of plays through his prime there. And then at the end of his career, there's that passing of the torch moment with Kyrie Irving. And Kyrie kind of, you know, like LeBron takes him over backseat. I think that was the plan anyway. Um, then the Isaiah Thomas trade happens. And I think that kind of mixes things up a little bit because Isaiah Thomas isn't as good um, – you know, at his best, isn't as good as Kyrie Irving, but he's still an incredibly dynamic point guard who can kind of do some of the same things as Kyrie Irving. And in theory, through that full strength, could have fit him well with LeBron. Um, but there certainly wasn't going to be that passing the torch moment um, just because of the kind of the stage that he's at in his career. Um, so that would put a little bit more pressure on LeBron. And then now you look at the team now. Like, all of this is on LeBron now. I think this team fits in well around him. They've got shooters, they've got longer defenders that can kind of complement him. But I mean, given his age and where he's at and his miles are up, like this is a huge ask of him to kind of dominate and be the point guard 40, well, however many minutes he plays tonight, 40 minutes tonight or whatever, um, and kind of carry them through, through the playoffs. Uh, and he's certainly capable of doing it. I just think, you know, this trade certainly puts a lot more pressure on him to kind of be an MVP kind of caliber player, which he was at the start of the season, but kind of sustain that for the rest of the season and moving forward or as long as they keep this roster together. Yeah, they didn't get another wing, an athletic defender to really help out because I think people just see Rodney Hood's size and assume that he's a good defender. But if you watch Rodney Hood, he's not a good defender. But he has the he has the look and I think the ability. It's just 
didn't work for whatever reason Utah, and it kind of concerns me if Utah, of all places, he wasn't a strong defender, then why would he become a better defender elsewhere? Because that's just basically what Utah is known for, especially this season. And I'm concerned on that front, but how you wrote about this. How do you see these guys individually fitting in next to LeBron? I mean, generally, I think they, I think they fit in really well. I think George Hill, first of all, um, I mean, he had, he, he was not having a good season with the Kings at all, but I think this kind of, this trade could rejuvenate him, but you look at him and at his best, I think he's kind of like the ideal point guard uh, to pair LeBron because he's a great defender when he's locked in. Um, and he, he's kind of like a three and D point guard. He's always been an excellent three point shooter. He can make plays as a secondary ball handler. Um, and I think that's kind of like the perfect point guard to play with LeBron outside of like a Kyrie Irving or something like that, who obviously they had great chemistry together. Um, I think Rodney Hood, I, I've always been a big fan of Rodney Hood. I get why people um, have been down on him because he's never kind of lived up to the expectations. And some of that is due to injuries and some of that's just kind of him not developing into the player um, people thought he would be. But I think he's still kind of a, he's a young, dynamic, long um, shooting guard who's an excellent three-point shooter and can kind of make some plays off the dribble. Um, and then Jordan Clarkson is obviously quite uh, polarizing. I think a lot of people are kind of down on that signing. But again, like, his contract is a problem. He's making a lot of money. Um, but LeBron kind of has a history of playing well with, um, you know, combo guards who, who, can, who can get a shot off in a variety of ways. So I think um, even though he is getting paid a lot of money, I think he could fit in well next to LeBron. I mean, he certainly showed that potential against Celtics the other night. Um, and I love Larry Nance. I think Larry Nance is perfect for this team. Um, he's athletic. He's young. He's going to get up and down the court. He's going to do all the little things for a team that um, – wasn't doing all the little things on both ends. Um, and I think just his presence alone, whether whether he, whether he or not he's playing in crunch time or whatever, um, the 20 minutes or 30 minutes he's in a game, depending on how he's playing, I think that's just going to set, set a tone that they need on both ends. So I think overall, I think they, they all fit in really well. Um, and I think in theory, it puts the Cavs as the best team in the East again. But there are questions about fit. I mean, they have like, what, 20 or 30 games to put it all together. Um, and I don't, I mean, this is coming from someone who is, you know, very optimistic about the Isaiah Thomas's fit um, and Jay Crowder as well. I think the only thing, while these players do fit in together, um, one of the things they are missing is kind of a second guy who can really consistently create his own shot. Um, it may not match in the first few rounds if this group lives up to its potential, um, but I think, you know, against the Warriors or whatever, um, I mean, they can throw so many long guys at LeBron that that's why Kyrie Irving was so good because um, he can kind of take that pressure of LeBron every so often and create his own shot, and they don't really have a guy on that roster right now who can do it. And they have Hood, who is the closest thing they have to that. Yeah. If you watch Hood a lot, it's not like he's a he is a catch-and-shoot shooter, but he does do a lot of stuff on his own and off the dribble, and he can create his own shot. He uses the pin-downs well, and he knows how to navigate in the pick-and-pop and the pick-and-roll, and, you know, he's comfortable creating his own shot. And what we saw against the Celtics, it's going to be a lot of the second unit because they're still starting JR, it looks like. So Rodney Hood is still going to, it looks like he's going to be tasked with um, leading that second unit and scoring. But I do wonder at some point if they do insert him into the starting lineup over JR. But JR is quietly back over 35% from three. I think he's at like 38 right now. But he shot the ball well and he's he looks a little bit better. And I mean, maybe just to keep him engaged, you have to keep him in the starting lineup. But they're still starting Chetty Osman, who I like, but that's the thing where 
they didn't get DJ, and if they were not, if it would require the Brooklyn pick, I'm glad they didn't do that because I just DJ's not worth it at this point. But I would have, I just felt like one more move maybe would have sold me on them. Really, not still not having a chance of the Warriors, but like really, really confident in this team and what they're going towards. But it just felt like they needed one more. But and that's crazy to think about considering they added so many guys, but that was just the horrible situation that they're in. And, you know, it's just none of these guys are two-way difference makers who will take a lot of the burden off LeBron. And the guy who potentially may do that, they may not be drafting until this summer. And that's why I think it's so interesting is, like, they added all these nice rotation pieces and they got younger, which I think is maybe the most important thing outside of George Hill. But they, these are all guys that are going to entice LeBron to stay because I think George Hill is a type of point guard that LeBron wants to play with. And George Hill's shooting almost 50% from the corner in the three. So they're going to love to drive and kick to him. And, you know, Rodney Hood, I'm sure LeBron will like. And then Larry Nance is just, I think, will be great for them. And he's someone who could probably start at the five and closing time with him and Kevin Love and, you know, Clarkson's whatever. <laughs> and, I guess I'm just really interested to see what happens with this pick because this Brooklyn pick could be the number one overall. It could be number three. Uh, they're only a couple games out of being the worst team in basketball, and they're like a Spencer Dinwiddie injury away from really just falling off the deep end. And, you know, I just I think that that's where they're going to have to find that last guy, like the Michael Porter Jr. or whoever, to pair with LeBron. I think that might be the biggest thing is, like, if you're LeBron, I still think staying in Cleveland's his best bet at this point, but... I, I do think the younger they're getting, the better off they are long-term, but they still didn't find that wing to kind of ease LeBron's burden, especially on the defensive side of the ball, because I think this is still going to be a pretty bad defensive team even after all these moves. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's again, that's why I kind of I kind of go back to the idea of like Kyrie Irving was the next in line. Like Kyrie Irving was going to be that guy for Cleveland, um, and I, that trade kind of messed things up um, in terms of that timeline. Um, so I agree with you. I think that that next pick is going to be huge, whether or not they actually draft someone who can kind of fill that role for them, or if they uh, just straight up trade it to someone else, or if they package it with uh, Kevin Love to try and kind of entice a bigger deal or something like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think generally I, I much I, I like how this team is constructed around LeBron. I think it plays to his strengths very well. Um, and even though he has walked so many miles and he's as old as he is, like he's still when he's playing full strength, he's still the best basketball player in the world. Um, and I think, you know, if you can surround guys, even at this stage of his career, you can kind of maximize um, his strength and allow him to flourish in whatever role he, he wants to do, whether that's, you know, functioning more as a point guard or kind of going down to playing like a power forward kind of role or whatever. Um, I think you can just find guys who can maximize his skills in those situations. That's obviously going to make for a really dynamic team. And I think they've kind of done that at the trade deadline. Um, so I think it makes them better now. It probably, I mean, compared to the team they had before the trade deadline, they have a much better chance of keeping LeBron now, I think. Um, but yeah, that, that net pick, whatever they do with it, if they sign, if they use it, if they trade it or whatever, that's going to be a huge step in determining their future. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be really fascinated to see what they do with that pick. Do you think, this was something I was also thinking about the trade deadline and just this team and... You know, the Raptors are quietly number one in the East again. And I shouldn't say again. They're number one in the East right now. And they'll probably have home court. It's either them or Boston, but Boston slipped a little bit. And, you know, I think they're a half game behind them right now in the lost column. But 
it seems like the Cavs can't catch them. They're like six or seven games back right now. And it's going to be asking a lot. So the Cavs are going to have to play a couple series in the road. And, you know, I don't think it makes a huge difference, but I do think that will take a toll. But I would have liked to see the Raptors do something. I really would have. And that's something I was thinking about. Like the Raptors should have seen the Cavs doing something at the deadline with how much turmoil they were going through and everything else. But they stuck with it. I mean, they nailed that OG and newbie pick. He's in top four on the team in minutes. And he's just, no one talks about him for rookie of the year, but he is a in, integral role player on the number one team in a conference. And he doesn't really get that kind of admiration, but OG and has been incredible for them. And DeMar DeRozan's obviously gone to another level. Kyle Lowry is still awesome, but you know, I still just look at this roster and, and think, you know, I, I think it's super deep and Masai Ujiri has done a fantastic job, but they didn't, they didn't really do anything. Adding Malachi Richardson is not going to move the needle against LeBron. And it's sad that they moved on from Bruno Caboclo and that never panned out, but Masai took a big swing there and I'm okay with it. And it did. it's, it's interesting. Like the deadline this year, thinking about it is the GMs who took like these crazy, uh, late lottery or, or late first round guys that no one had heard of. Like the Kings just waved Giorgio Papianis and they yeah. took him in the lottery after a couple of years. And the Raptors just took a flyer on Bruno Caboclo and like, Oh, he could be Kevin Durant in like nine years maybe. And it never happened, but I appreciate these teams like taking these crazy shots rather than taking the third year guard, like TJ leaf from UCLA or something. Just, take the chance but it didn't work out but the raptors just they stayed pat really and i didn't really understand that because they're really close and i mean you're the number one team in the east why not try I, obviously marcus all wasn't available but i would have liked to see them do something and they just have so many assets and they have so many solid rotation guys i would have liked to see them do a three for one because they are one of those teams who can afford to do that and maybe it was because there was no one around who they could really do it with. But I I would have liked to see the Raptors respond to the Cavs doing what they did. Yeah. I, I, the, one of the things with the, the Raptors, though, is that I think part of what's making them so good this season is that they do have a really deep bench. Um, and that second unit, when you have, uh, you know, Fred Van Vliet, DeLon Wright, um, the, those guys who just get up and down the floor, they pressure teams, they, put, they like, pick them up full court. Um, I mean, that's a huge part of their team and a huge part of their, their success this season. So when you think of like them making the move at the trade deadline, they probably have to piece together, you know, a couple of those guys. Um, and then again, in the same way that the Cavs have to have 20, 25 games to kind of um, work in new players, it's like when you move so much of your team away that's been so successful, you, that, that's going to be hard to kind of find your rhythm again. Um, so, I mean, it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see if this team, because, again, like in the playoffs as well, when the rotation is kind of shortened down, that bench is probably going to be less of a competitive advantage for them. Um, it may not be. I, I Who knows? But in the past, usually, it's, you know, teams run eight, eight, eight players deep. Um, yeah. So there's less of, a, less, less of an advantage there or anything. But um, I think it's just one of those tough situations. On, you know, on one hand, it's like, who do they go after? We don't exactly know who, who was available and who would have moved the needle. Um, like, would you want to package a deal to get, like, DeAndre Jordan? Does, that, does DeAndre Jordan put the Raptors over the Cavaliers or something? Um, and, you know, is it, is it worth just kind of keeping together what they have right now and, and seeing how far they can go with it? Um, 
I, I don't know, but I, I actually don't mind them not making a move at the trade deadline. I think like the Celtics may have been better off making a deal than like the Raptors, for example. Interesting. Well, I'm gonna have to respectfully disagree. I mind. I'm I minded very much, <laughs> Scott. <laughs> well, so who do you think they should have gone after? I was upset. If they were available. If if I could have done anything for them, I would have I would have either done one or two things. I would have at least taken another shot at one of these young guys who I've heard a lot of people talk about the secondary draft where, you know, those yeah. guys who like the Alfred Paytons who didn't work on their first stop, maybe they work on their second stop. So I would have I would have poked around in Phoenix. I would have looked okay, Phoenix has Dragon Bender, they have Marquise Chris. They have a lot of guys that we're not sure how they're all gonna fit in Phoenix, like I would have made a call and see like, okay, we get them into our culture, our environment. These were top five picks. Like Bender was number three overall. And I think Chris was four or five or something like that. And at the time I remember it's just hindsight's 2020, but people were talking about him as like the best overall talent and maybe should go number one overall that year. And it hasn't worked out and that's weird, but I would have targeted somebody like him. DJ would have made a lot of sense for this team, I think, but I, depending on what, the Clippers would have asked. I think that's the veteran I would have targeted. And then the other one, Scalabici in Sacramento, who I still really like. And you, if anytime you have a chance to do a deal with the Kings, you should always do that. And, you know, maybe they could have done like, maybe they could have gotten Willie Colley Stein and uh, Scalabici for uh, a lot of their good pack. Like Norman Powell, they don't even need him anymore. He was an incredible player for Toronto last year. This year he has fallen off a cliff. They have Pascal um, Siakam, who's been great for them. They have OG Anubis, maybe their best trade chip as a whole, just because they've done such a great job with him. But they have Jakob Pertle, who they could also have thrown in for Sacramento. He's a good young player now who plays for them. Um, you know, there's just a bunch of guys that I think they could have moved around because, like you said, rotations shorten up come playoff time, and they're not going to be able to play all these guys. Jakob Pertle's not going to be able to play as much as he is. Dylan Wright, Fred Van Fleet, these guys, the minutes are going to shrink, and I just would have liked to see them cash in on somebody, but I, I guess Scala BCA would be my number one because I really like that guy. And I really want to see him on a good team because I think he could be really, really good. In I, the right I, situation. Yeah. I really like him too. The only thing is like, I don't think outside of DeAndre Jordan, I don't think any of those guys necessarily help the Raptors this year. Um, and if that's yeah, the case, that's like I, I, you know, I'm, I'm just, it's one of those things, like, do they just keep it together this year, run with the team they have? Because, well, I mean, what they have right now is, is really good. They have – their starting five is really good. DeAndre, uh, obviously, um, DeRozan stepped up this season. Kyle Lowry's minutes kind of reduced, and he looks awesome. Um, and that bench has been awesome. So, it's like, you keep that together and just see how kind of how far you can go, um, especially if there's not, like, an immediate upgrade you can get out there. Um, and I, I think DeAndre Jordan would have been interesting uh, on this team. But, again, like, the asking price for him may have been so high that it's – it's hard to know in these situations, right? Because we throw around hypothetical trades all the time. It's like the Cavs should have got DeAndre Jordan and stuff like this, but we don't know like what what the Clippers are asking. Um, so I mean, it's obviously this. Yeah, it's just it's it's a tough situation. Um, so I, I don't know. In general, like I I really don't mind what the Raptors did. Um, I think they're super fun this year. I don't. All that playoff success hinges on whether or not DeRozan and Lowry kind of step up because they have a history of fading the playoffs. Um, so, you know, it's impossible to say whether or not they're going to get over that. Um, but if they do, like, you know, maybe that's what, maybe that is it. Maybe that's kind of like the edge they do need. Um, who knows? We'll find out, I guess. We will. We weren't even planning on talking about the Raptors tonight, no. but it just, <laughs> I, I, 
somehow like i am weirdly fascinated with the raptors and it's always going to annoy me that they're it seems like they're on the precipice and they just do so many things right but they just they haven't taken the big swing yet and i'm i'm excited for when they finally do cuz i hope Masai Ujiri finally does it and i guess thinking about the cavs taking doing all these different moves to win the east and teams like the raptors not doing anything i don't know it's just going to bother me so are we in agreement that the cavs are back to being the favorites in the east uh Here's the thing, right? Like, I'm I'm never going to bet against LeBron until he gives me a reason to bet against him. So, like, before the trade deadline, I probably would have been, like, uh, probably not the best team in the East when it comes down to all. Um, but, like, in a playoff series, like, I'm still sticking LeBron. If you, they go game seven against the Raptors, I'm still going with LeBron. So, just on that basis alone, like, yes, I think they're, the, they're still the team to beat. Yeah, I don't think they would have made it out if they kept the status quo or done minor moves and kept Wade and kept Isaiah, I don't think they would have made it out of the East. But now I think, now I think they would. Now I think that they should be the favorite. Now I think they're going to be really fun offensively. And I think there's this just rejuvenation that, I mean, just seeing how excited LeBron was that Jordan Clarkson transition three was, uh, but you know, LeBron's also going to like cover his eyes because Jordan Clarkson's going to do that again. And it's going to be an air ball. And it's going to be very frustrating because Jordan Clarkson is just so hit or miss that uh, LeBron caught him on a good day <laughs> against the, the uh, against the Celtics. The highs are always incredibly high for the Cavaliers, and the lows are so low. So it's you know it's like it's always worth keeping that in mind because they look great against the Celtics yeah. on the road, and they look amazing. But in two weeks' time, they could be hitting a rough spot, and it might look miserable again. But like in saying that, like I still think this team is much better suited. Uh, for they want to accomplish this season and everything. So I think they, I I think it's admirable what they did at the trade deadline, and it's going to be very interesting to see um, if all the pieces do fit together. Because so I think they, I think they could be. I still don't think they're at Warriors level. I honestly don't think anyone's at the Warriors level when they're healthy. Um, but I mean, they certainly, if they get back to the NBA Finals again, like that's that's a huge win. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I, I just there's not an easy way for me to ask this question, but maybe outside of what the Grizzlies did, and I, we'll talk about them in a second. But the Wizards, Ernie Grunfeld really wants to add a veteran point guard, and I still can't seem to figure out why the Washington Wizards, especially at the deadline, pre-deadline, post-deadline, why they're so dead set on adding a point guard. I I can't figure this out at all. Well, I think a lot of that has to do with. Well, John Wall's not coming back until, what, the end of March? He was out, I think they announced yeah. um, he was out at the end of January, and they said, what, six, eight weeks? Um, mm-hmm. So that's obviously a huge loss. And then I think with Sadoransky being out um, with a concussion, I think, I mean, who is that play guard right now? It is Tim Frazier. And then who, do they even have, I guess, like, Beal would be the back. Yeah, Tim, um, Tim Frazier's... Um, he underwent surgery on Sunday after that. I was going to say, we should point out, uh, Bobby Portis went on a mission over the weekend yeah. to destroy every Washington Wizards point guard and make Ernie Grunfeld's life even more hectic because he need Tim Frazier in the face. That one was ill-advised, and he didn't mean to do that. But I will say the flagrant two that he got on uh, Tomas Sadoransky and that hard fall that I do not encourage anyone to watch the video of because you can hear Sadoransky hit the floor and it is it 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 
sends shivers down my spine. It was, yeah, it's rough. It was not great, and uh, he got ejected for it. So Bobby Portis does not like the Washington Wizards point guards and made it his mission to knock them all out over the weekend, and he did. Mission accomplished. I guess that's why they're on the market <laughs> for a, like a veteran point guard then. I mean, like... I get Beal's at point guard right now, which is, I mean, he he carries their whole, basically all their offense. Actually, I guess I should yeah. say that. Sadoransky was really good before he went, uh, before he, he was. pulled that game. Um, he was really stepping up to be playing really well. But even then, like, him and backup Tim Frazier, like, they, they I'm, I'm not surprised that they're going after a point guard. It's just Derek Rose isn't that answer, even though it doesn't look like they're going to get him now. Um, and then who are they? I forgot his name now. Um, oh, I know his name. He's What's the worst name? point Ty guard Wilson. in there the go. last decade. <laughs> Ty Lawson, right? No. No, 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 no. I, Ty Lawson, I think, would actually be a better option than who they're actually targeting outside of Derrick Rose. Who are they targeting outside of Derrick Rose? Ramon Sessions, who was cut by the Knicks uh, this before the season started, or even it was before the season or in middle season, I don't even know. But Ramon Sessions is the other option. And I, I don't know if I've ever disliked watching a point guard play basketball more than Ramon Sessions. He is yeah. good at nothing, and it's always bothered me. <laughs> I don't know how. I remember being so upset. You're a Charlotte guy. When they replaced Jeremy Lin and just the sheer arrogance of Michael Jordan and Rich Cho to replace Jeremy Lin and that great backcourt duo he had with Kimba that year where they made the playoffs with Ramon Sessions. And believe it or not, the team fell off a cliff when they substituted Jeremy Lin for Ramon Sessions, and I'll blame all their struggles that year on Sessions' existence on that roster. He is Jeez. just not good. And I know if he listens to the podcast, I apologize. It's nothing personal, Sessions. It's just, as a point guard, it I don't know what you do. All right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, they are also apparently looking at Ty Lawson, who's been playing in China and is averaging like 30, they really? 40 points a game. Yeah. I saw that it was a few hours ago. He's got to add to the mix. So Great. They might not sign remote sessions. That's the good news for you. It might be Ty Lawson. Very good news. So there you go. Because I, I would, I, I just, their issues were not at point guard. Sadoransky was great, and I think Beal could work as the de facto point guard till Wall gets back. And then when Sadoransky gets back, you can move Frazier back out of the rotation and put Sadoransky back in there because he was just flourishing as the backup point guard and you still have Frazier so whatever but their issues I think were bigger at the five Cortad has not been a starting quality center all year and they still have that Albatross Ian Mahimney contract that they can't really move and I just would have liked to see them do something there and I've talked up the Wizards a lot this year and it's just they're still fourth or fifth like they're going to be a four or five seed in the Eastern Conference playoffs this year and They've gone through a lot, and John Wall has made some really weird quotes, but Bradley Beal's an all-star. And my whole point with them, it's like they're the opposite of the Raptors, where they are just like five guys, and they are banking on those five to stay healthy. And if they are, they are a really scary basketball team. But they have no depth, and I think they need to embrace that and just do whatever they can to add that fifth piece and... Gortat is not that fifth piece, and I would have liked to see them get DeAndre Jordan. I, I understand that they would have had to give up a little bit more. Maybe the Clippers didn't really like what Washington was offering, but I think they needed to do some sort of shakeup, not to the extent that the Cavs did, but I think they should have done something, and they did literally nothing, and I don't really understand why. Because 
even more so than the Raptors, I think this team is just, no one wants to play that five-man closing unit of Wall, Porter, Beal, Oubre, and if you want to play Marquis for whoever, like, that is a really good closing lineup. That's a really, the Wizards are just, when I think about them, I think they are built for the playoffs. They are not a regular season team. They're just trying to survive and get there. But come playoff time, I still would bet on them to get at least one series win under their belts. And maybe two if they had added someone else. But I I don't know. I, I would say this, even with the Wizards not making any major moves, if they get the Raptors in round two, I'm picking the Wizards. It's going to, for me, just in general, it's going to be hard when, when like the Raptors get in a situation like that. I love the Raptors. I love their team. Um, but I'm kind of at like a, you need to prove it stage uh, for me, you know, like when they get that definitive five game win over the Wizards in the second round of the playoffs, like at that point, maybe I'll be like, yes, I like, I fully believe in this team. Um, but they just have, like their history. It's hard to bet on the Raptors in this kind of situation, even though I really want to, like they're, they're a different team this year. Um, but I mean, they're still only going to go as far as like Lowry and, DeRoz- Lowry and DeRoz- right? Um, so kind of yeah. until they kind of break that, that, that trend, it's going to be hard for me to kind of buy into them. Um, the Wizards have been super weird this week, this year. It's it's been so hard to know like what kind of team they are, um, where they're trending, where they're heading. I mean, all this stuff between like, I don't know if it's real. The stuff on Twitter with like Martin Gortat and John Wall going back and forth about having how they're more of a team without John Wall in, how they're moving the ball better. Like all that stuff is pretty yeah. concerning considering John Wall is you know the franchise player on the team. Um, so it's it's hard to tell. But again, like Wall and Beal, every single year in the playoffs, they step up. If they're healthy, yep. history says they push teams to the limit. Um, so who knows? Who knows? So this might be, uh, Scott, I want you to, uh, to tell me whether or not this is a outlandish take. It's a compound take, I guess I should say. I think I would rather have Kyle Lowry than John Wall. And I'd rather have Bradley Beal than DeMar DeRozan. If I had my perfect backcourt among these uh, two teams who have been compared ad nauseum, I think my perfect balance would be Kyle Lowry and Bradley Beal. I think they're the better between the two point guards and the two shooting guards. I really do believe that. Is that, is that outlandish? First of all, do you like DeRozan? I can't remember if you're a DeRozan guy or not. I was significantly lower on him before the season, but I really like him this year. But I still think Beal... And what he brings at the two is just always going to be more of, I, I I just like him more. I do. And I think I, he's still significantly younger and I think he figured it out way before DeRozan did, but I, I don't know. I like Bradley Beal a lot, especially this year. And yeah, I think DeRozan's, he's moved up a little bit. He's made it a little bit more difficult, but I still would take Bradley Beal. I don't think that's a crazy take. Um, I think, Beal, just in a vacuum, like Beal is the kind of guy who would fit into most things much easier than DeRozan. Um, just kind of like, just because of the other things that he can do, you know, he's more of a, he's much more of a pure shooter than DeRozan is. Um, DeRozan is much, is much more ball dominant shooting guard and kind of needs the offense run through him. And that's why him and Larry work so well together because although Larry is one of the best pick and roll scorers in the NBA, um, he's also a fantastic catch and shoot player. Um, he can run off of screens and things like that. Like they, they work together perfectly. Um, but I think in general, um, if that's kind of what you're talking about, Beal will fit into most teams easier than DeRozan will just because of their styles and how they play. Yeah. Um, so I, in that sense, like, I mean, I think DeRozan is a very polarizing player. Like some people hate him. Some people love him. I really like him. 
Um, I think he's, he improves his game every single year. Like, he's still a very flawed player in some aspects. But, man, that guy, like, every year he comes back. We criticize him saying he comes back and adds it to his game. Um, he's not, like, a knockdown three-point shooter. But, he's, I mean, he's having a career year from the perimeter. He's improved as a passer. Um, so, I think I, I just have a soft swap for Duros in general. But, like, I, I totally know what you mean. You want to see something funny? Guess who is six and seven right next to each other in real plus minus among shooting guards in the NBA this year? DeRozan and Beal. Yes, but Beal is <laughs> ahead of DeRozan right now. They're they can't get away from each other. Yeah. I also love that Tyreek Evans is number uh, four in the league among is he really? two guards, and he did not. Yes, and he did not get moved. He would have been. He would have been another one who. Like, can you imagine him just being the stopgap point guard um, next to Beal and? The, I mean, he's basically a point forward, but I guess point... Uh, he, whatever. He doesn't really have a position. Tyreek just does a lot of good stuff for your team. And especially with Wall out, man, he may have... That may have been the best landing spot for him. Not Philly, but actually Washington. Yeah, I mean, going, like, going back to what you were saying earlier, the Wizards are the number four spot right now, but they also there's only one loss separating them from the, the 76ers in eighth place. Um, they've yeah. won four more games than them, so they're three and a half games ahead of the Sixers at eighth place. But I mean... If you look at the fact that they're down all their point guards right now, um, they lose a few games because of that maybe, and then they're in a fight down the final 20 games of the season. John Wall's just coming back from two months off. Um, like Things could get ugly in that sense. So like I, I don't necessarily think it's going to go that way, um, but you're right. I think you know adding someone like Tyreek Evans to, I mean, who knows? I think the Grizzlies are trying to get a first-round pick for him, which is quite – that's a huge ask considering he's on – a one-year contract and he's an unrestricted free agent uh, in the offseason. But if they could have got him for like, you know, anything less than that, that's, that, that would probably be a perfect situation for him. Yeah. It just annoys me. It really does. This team is just, they are so close to having five guys that really just like auto Porter's number one, real plus minus among all three guards right now. Number one. I don't get it. I like Tom, Tomas Sodoransky is still, he's just been great on both sides. Like I just, I would have liked to see them just add one more. I don't know if it was DeAndre. I don't know if it was Tyreek, but they should have done something. And, you know, Chris Wallace, and this is a good transition to the other thing I want to talk about today, but it, you just got to do something. Like, I understand how difficult it is, and we don't really know behind the scenes how difficult it is to make these kind of moves and everything that goes into it. But the Wizards are close. I wouldn't say close to contention, but they are close to being an Eastern Conference powerhouse. And I think they're still just missing one final piece. It's not Otto Porter. It's not Kelly Uber. It's not Marcin Gortat. It's not Markeith Morris. It's not Sadaransky. I don't know who it is, but I would have liked to see them take more aggressive swings at the deadline, especially when you have guys as good as Porter, Beal, and Wall are. It's just at some point you have to start taking these chances. And the East was more wide open than it has been in years. So that was the other thing where it's like, you know, if the Cavs don't pull off all those deals, the I, I mean, can you imagine just the how much interest there would have been in the Eastern Conference playoffs this year? Like if they went in with Isaiah Thomas in this group, like it would have been yeah. incredibly fascinating. And especially if the Cavs got knocked out early, like, oh my God, what's what is even happening now? Like where does what does the East look like and all that kind of stuff? So I I, I, I I'm just I'm not mad, Ernie Grunfeld. I'm disappointed. Actually, I'm both. I'm mad and I'm disappointed. And if you end this trade season by adding Ramon Sessions and not trading for anybody else, I I just there's gonna be a riot. I, I can't deal with it. There's gonna be a riot apparently. 
I, I I'm just I'm over it. <laughs> Ernie Grunfeld is not a good general manager. It turns out. I think. I think it's what we're getting at. And you know who else is not a good general manager? Chris Wallace. Look at that segue. Lucas Grizzlies. <laughs> that's why I'm. That's why I'm the host of this podcast. <laughs> is I, for these very organic segues. The Grizzlies did not trade Ty- Tyreek Evans. Why do you think they did not? And what do you think really happened there, Scott? I honestly have no idea. I I have no idea. I mean, there's a possibility that they have. I mean, that they, they can't legally come to an agreement at this point in the season and be like, you know, we're keeping you around. Um, but maybe their intention is to keep him around after the season. But again, it's not like, like they. Pro- I think they could have traded him um, and he's going to be an unrestricted free agent on the offseason. Like they could have theoretically traded him, let him play the last 20, 30 games of the season out with another team and then sign him again in free agency. Like I don't, they don't get. Yeah, because they don't have their bird rights anyway. Right. So, it doesn't so they, really they don't get any upper hand in keeping him um, before he goes into free agency. Uh, so it's just, and he, you know, he he can make a difference. They, the Memphis Grizzlies, are not in playoff the playoff contention right now. Um, so it's not like they need to keep him for that reason. Uh, so it's just, it's confusing. It's really confusing. I I, I don't know honestly. Well, there, it seems like a lot of executives have been ripping Chris Wallace, and it's just you know the you played yourself meme is just played out for the Grizzlies in their front office at the deadline because you know I get winning a first round pick because Tyreek Evans has been really, really good for them. And they really wanted to get a first round pick for him, especially with their situation. And like, you know, they have a lottery pick and they were able to get like even a late first. That's a huge thing for them. And, you know, it it would have been, obviously I think Tyreek was one of those guys who I think if you were a contender or a pseudo contender, like if you're the wizards, I think you would have, I'm not sure what their pick situation was this year, but you know, I, I, I probably would have done it. I probably would have given him a first-round pick for Tyreek. And, you know, they've taken bigger chances on less talented guys. Remember when they traded the first-round pick for Bogdanovich and let him walk after the year? That's yeah. the kind of thing that I would have wanted to see happen for Tyreek is just go to one of those teams where they did give up a late first and, but, you know, would have re-signed him because I didn't really understand why the Wizards didn't re-sign Bogdanovich, but they did pay Jody Meek, so... Another great Ernie Grunfeld move. Um, <laughs> I just, I don't really get it. And even if you had to settle for two second rounders, I would have done that because you probably aren't going to keep them anyway because you don't even have his bird rights. There's just no reason to keep him. And even if you want to resign him this summer, and even if it looks more likely that he will stay, I don't know why he would. He is just at the point of his career where you would think he'd want to play on a playoff team. The Grizzlies are not going to be a playoff team anytime soon. I don't think. Well, the Grizzlies have, is it nearly $80 million tied up in Colony Parsons and Gasol next season. Um, so it's not even yeah. like they have that much money to work with as it is, you know, once you factor in, I mean, the one good thing they have going for them in that sense is that uh, there's not a lot of money to go around this off season. So, you know, maybe they're banking on the fact that, they will be able to get re-sign Tyreek Evans to less value than, you know, he's expected to get because of that. Um, but even then, like, do they even want to have him on their roster next year? And that's not a criticism of who he is as a player. That's just, you know, what situation they're in. Like, they don't necessarily, it's a sinking ship, right? Like the Grizzlies aren't in a very good situation right now. Um, and they kind of have to reevaluate how, what they, where they want to go and how they want to go about things. 
Um, and keeping a guy like Tyreek, who is probably looking to, to sign a long contract in the offseason, given his um, age and injury history and things like that. That's not the kind of guy, especially once they've already signed Chandler Parsons to a contract and we know how he's turned out. Um, you probably don't want to sign another guy like that to a long-term contract. Um, so any return, I'm sure they were probably looking for a first-round pick. The fact that they didn't trade him probably means that no one really offered a first-round pick. Um, and even though he's having a great season, I think you know he's not necessarily the easiest player to kind of incorporate into a team. Because um, even though he's improved as a three-point shooter, a lot of his three-point shots um, still come off the dribble. Um, he's a ball-dominant guard who kind of make, likes to make plays for himself. Um, and that, that player can certainly work in a very good situation. Like, I think Boston, I'm convinced, can pretty much make any player work in that system. Um, but he could have definitely helped them, for example, or maybe the Wizards. Um, but even in that sense, like, I don't think he's necessarily the easiest person to incorporate into a system at this stage of the season, especially if teams trying to compete, um, which is why they may have been reluctant to give up a first-round pick, if that makes sense. Do you know, as you're pointing out, like, where he'd fit in and how difficult it is to acclimate him, it came to mind the Spurs without Kawhi. Yeah, they're another one. I mean, right, you trust Pop with anyone, right? Like, Pop yeah. can, I, I'm convinced, like, anyone in that system would work. Um, but you're right, someone who can create off the dribble in the backcourt, um, create for himself and others, like, that, that would have been another good situation for him. But, again, like, the Spurs, they have a great scouting team. Um, they always seem to find gems and at the end of the first round, so maybe they're just happier keeping that. Uh, you know, but they uh, were sniffing around at Avery Bradley, and I didn't really get that to be out there. Yeah, I, I I'm not a big Avery Bradley person. I like Avery Bradley a lot, um, but da- I I like Danny Green more, um, which is why I didn't really get mm-hmm. it. That didn't make much sense to me, especially when Avery Bradley's gonna. I mean, it's a weird time to be a free agent, so maybe they could have signed him to a. You know, I think he's up for a free agency this uh, in the offseason, right? I'm not getting that wrong. Yes. Um, so, you know, maybe he has an option. I want to say he has a player option. Um, I mean, either way, I still think I, I'd much better have Danny Green than, than Avery Bradley, all things considered. Yeah. Well, like Evans is going to be able to choose between a lot of mid-level offers. I think he is going to have a pretty, like, even with a lot of teams not having the cap space they did a couple of years ago, I think there is a lot, there are going to be a lot of teams that are going to be interested in Tyreek Evans, especially with the kind of year he's had. And if he stays healthy down the stretch here, but I just, you know, the Grizzlies can theoretically offer him a deal no one else could because it can allow, basically like with the way the CBA works is they can, um, he can opt out after one year and be eligible for a, like a bigger pay day uh, because of early yeah. bird rights. So it's like up to, uh, let's see, 175% of his previous year's salary. So that is exclusively a Grizzlies thing they can offer. So if he wants to go down that road, he can do that. But if I'm Tyreek, I just, I guess it's because the Grizzlies future is so cloudy that I don't know if I'm, if I'm him, I want to stay there, but at the same, like, you don't even know who their coach is going to be next year. I'm going to go ahead and assume it's not going to be JB Bickerstaff. And we don't know what Mike Conley's going to look like when he comes back. We don't know what the rest of this roster is going to look like. We don't know what they're going to do with their lottery pick. There's just, there is so much uncertainty with Memphis right now. And it's so odd because they were the most, <laughs> I don't like, we just knew what we were getting for the Grizzlies for so long, the grit and grind Grizzlies and just them being in the playoffs and being a pain every year. And they were just a playoff mainstay. And now 
you know, they've kind of fallen off and they kind of remind me of the Hawks, but they just have been more reluctant to move on and change gears than Atlanta. Atlanta has fully embraced the tank this year, but Atlanta did the same kind of thing where they just let, they lost Al Horford in free agency. And then they were very reluctant to trade Millsap, even though they probably had very good deals at the deadline last year. And then they ended up losing him anyway. And I think there's this, I understand these teams who get comfortable making the playoffs year after year. Um, the, the Hawks after this year will end their playoff win streak or playoff appearance streak. I think it was at 10 years at this point. And, you know, I, I can understand why that's difficult to walk away from, but that's kind of what I think about when I think about the Grizzlies is that they are in this tricky situation where they have so much money tied up to Parsons, Conley and Gasol that, you know, I don't think they want to go through a full long-term rebuild, especially in a small market like Memphis, which I think is the second smallest market in the NBA behind New Orleans. And that's going to be tough. But at the same time, they're bad anyway. And you think about it, and you're like, if you're already going to be bad, like you need to do everything you can to kind of, I don't want to say rebuild on the fly, but just be proactive and remaking this roster and just pick a vision. I, I just don't know what they're doing. And I don't think the Grizzlies have decided what they want to do going forward and where they want to be. Like, we don't know if Chris Wallace is going to be there five years from now. We don't know their coach is going to be. We don't know how Gasol is going to age and how much of a drop off we could expect next year from him. How does Conley come back at this point? And Chandler Parsons, just that albatross of a contract. Like there's just so many question marks with this team that that was like the one non question mark at the deadline. It's like, they're going to trade Tyreek and hopefully get a first round, but if not two second rounders, whatever, just get something because he has been the lone bright spot on an otherwise awful year in Memphis. Yeah. I think in general, um, we underestimate how much, I, I think you made a really good point. Like I think people underestimate generally how important it is for small market teams to be playoff teams, uh, playoff contenders or anything like that. Like we look at what the Pistons did at the trade deadline. Um, you know, a lot of people, um, criticize them for that trade because you know it, it, they traded a lot to get someone who, although he is, he used to be an all-star. He hasn't been all-star in a couple of seasons, I don't think. Um, but Blake Griffin is, you know, a fantastic player, an all-star caliber player who's still relatively young, even though he has um, injury problems. But like that move isn't going to put them in the Eastern Conference Finals this year. That move is going to hopefully make the playoffs for them. Um, and I think generally, you know, we underestimate that, but that means a lot to small markets. Um, and I think it can be really hard for them to kind of blow it off and move on from the pieces. And you're right, we saw with Atlanta, uh, moving on from Holford and Millsap and not trading them. Um, but I think another thing you said is like the vision thing, that's the biggest problem. Um, it's at least the Sixers are an extreme example, but the whole time, like they established a vision and they, they saw it through. Um, it was very clear what they were doing and they kept to it um, and they never stood far away from it. But it seems like the Grizzlies, like it, it, it's hard to tell what they're doing right now. And I think that's that's the most frustrating thing. Yeah, I I just I don't think they have the answers right now. And I mean, it's a complicated situation, but I don't think they know what's going on. I think it's just even if you sign Tyreek this summer and you keep him and you lock him into that two-year deal or whatever, I don't know if that still remedies the situation that they had this trade deadline. And I think. If I'm a Grizzlies fan, I'm nervous about what lies ahead because I, I'm i not confident, but at the same time, they do still have Mike Conley. They still have Marcus Hall, but, and they still have a, they're going to have a good lottery pick. So we'll see what they do with it. But I mean, they don't really have a great history uh, yeah. developing well, that's guys the other thing, right? out of the lottery. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know. I feel bad because the Grizzlies have a lot of great fans, but you know, I, hey man, those I'm, I'm nervous. Are so much fun. Like even the start of this season, like they came out this season strong. Um, they looked like they were going to be a playoff team again. And then it just kind of fell off quickly. Um, and it is a shame because like that, that grit and grind team, the way that the city embraced them and everything like that, those are fun teams. And that was, in, that was an awesome time. Um, it's just, it's going to be it's clearly, I mean, it is very hard for the small market teams to kind of know what to do and when to do it and have the confidence to kind of pull that trigger in those situations. Well, if Grizzlies fans want to dive into some nostalgia, they can watch the Sacramento Kings play basketball this year and then they can get a nice whiff of the Griffin grit and grind era because Zach Randolph is a 27% usage percentage for the Kings this year starts for them. Is a huge part of their losing and it's uh remarkable. <laughs> that team, the Kings are remarkable just in general. I think they're, are they still 30th in offensive and defensive efficiency right now? Um, I'm not sure about the offense. I'm pretty sure you're right about the defense. I'm going to check right now. That, that, that would be awful. impressive. 30th for both is, is quite good. Yep, they were. It's not, the 30th yes. in offense and oh, the 29th in, according to ESPN, the 29th in defense. Phoenix is 30th right now. Oh, uh, Phoenix. It was, you know what did them in? It was that game where they got trounced by like 60 points the other night. Yeah, it was the Spurs. The Kings lose to you by 60. Was it the Spurs? Was it the Spurs? It was the Spurs. Yeah. yeah. That's what did it. The Spurs ruined all the fun for us. There you go. <sighs> Spurs ruined you history. Go. There can't be many teams that were bottom of the league in offensive and defensive efficiency, right? I can't imagine there's many teams can't that do be. that. All right. I think th- I think we've found your next article, Scott. Is, I'm, just, I'm thinking about uh, I don't know if that's, like, that's crazy, because then you'd think the worst team in the NBA would be near the bottom of both of those categories. So I don't know if that's mm-hmm. just like a really stupid question. And of course, there's been plenty of teams like that. Or if it is actually kind of rare. I don't know. It could be one extreme or the other. I, I don't know either. I am I think we both are going to have to dive into this. And All right, let's, just, out over some let's just check last past. season and see what happened. Last season, the Lakers were last in defensive efficiency. And they were, mm-hmm. uh, they were 24th in offensive efficiency. All right. So I might be on something here. Philadelphia, Shout Philadelphia, out to the Kings, were, making history. Yeah, Philadelphia were last in offensive efficiency the season before that, and then they were 25th in defensive efficiency. So who knows? Yeah, I was going to say, Brett Brown, there's no way Brett Brown coach team is going to be last in both. Yeah. I, I don't see that being a possibility. Yeah. Huh. There you go. Man, Kings, they're in jeopardy. But, <laughs> you know, the Suns, <laughs> adding Alfred Payton, I guess, uh, well, I don't know. I guess that theoretically helps their defense so they can jump back up into 29th who knows maybe wow what a way in the podcast yep what a jury note (laughs) (laughs) dark times in sacramento it sure is you know all right well free scala bca free De'Aaron fox free willie collystein free all the good play oh free bogdan their most exciting young player there you go uh who has been really fun for them but uh anyway scott thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's always great talking cool. basketball with you we can find you on twitter at crab dribbles we can read you at the sporting news where you should read scott's latest piece on the Cavs and how they will fit with lebron rolling stone and he's also an editor at the step back so scott we will have to do this again soon sir cool thank you as always for having me on i appreciate it thanks scott all right man have a good one
right, on the line now, it's one of my favorite baseball writers. It's Maury Brown. Maury, good evening. How are you? I'm great. How about yourself? I am doing pretty well, man. Um, it's uh, it's really cool to have you on the podcast. I've uh, known about your work for years, going back to Fangraphs and everything else, and now you're at Forbes, and there is uh, a lot of stuff that I wanted to pick your brain tonight on uh, in terms of baseball, because it, it might seem a little odd because of how quiet of an offseason this has been to kind of to kind of go down this rabbit hole, but there's just... There's a lot of interesting developments, um, I think, in baseball this year. But, you know, firstly, you Darvish, he finally signed. And he, I mean, there was traction, I believe, like almost a month ago where it was like, oh, the Cubs are upping their offer. It looks like the Cubs are actually the favorite. And then the Twins have always been on the outside looking in. And, you know, there is a history there with, uh, I think it's Thad Levin, who coming from the, or Thad Levine, who came from uh, the Rangers and their relationship was important at, to getting you Darvish to Minnesota. But ultimately he signed a long-term deal with the Cubs. But then again, he does, I believe have an opt out after the second year. So uh, firstly, is this a good move for the Cubs? Well, I think that in the near term, of course it is. I think that it bolsters their, the, their rotation that they needed. I think that um, there were always some concerns about Jake Arrieta. It sounds to me like the RFC had, a like offer in place for Darvish. Um, I think that they looked at the fact that they, you know, wanted to basically um, not only win in 2015, but I think that uh, in 2016 they wanted to continue um, that winning those winning ways last year. Of course, they didn't, and so you know, I, I think that there that was kind of the way that they were looking. I think that the Ricketts family has put it in, put um, the UFC in a position to try and do what they can to continue to be competitive. They have still a lot of young talent. And so they are built that way. And so I think that there was always, much like you said, that there was always this conversation going on. Um, and then you, you have to you know, ask yourself, of course, if, if things aren't you know going the way that they wanted it to go with Chicago, was Minnesota going to be a, a, a potential destination? No, I don't think that there's ever a, a free agent that sits there and goes, oh, we're just going to put all our eggs in one basket. And they have to look at other options depending upon how the landscape is. And especially if you're a plum of a free agency crop like Darvish is, for better or worse right now, whether, you know, he's you know going to be considered um, a top shelf guy um, is always going to be a question. I think that certainly the club the cuts look at it that way. But look, I mean, a big part of this is really surrounding when there is free agency, what kind of deals have to come into play um, to get a player that you want under contract. A lot of the deals sounded like they were five years in nature, um, hanging around a hundred million. Um, so um, that didn't seem to be what he was thinking. Of course, he was looking for seven. So it's much like any kind of negotiations, right? You know, you start high and get you get it back down to something in the middle, right? So six years, 126 million gets the AAV and around, um, 21 million per, um, and there's a bunch of incentives involved. I mean, you mentioned on the opt-out clause, which is a, a significant thing. And so I do think that it works out good for all sides. And I think that it's a large, um, the, the structure of it and how things went and what ultimately happened for the Cubs, I think is a good barometer for what would I think would traditionally be a, a, a deal um, under any other circumstances other than an off-season where there hasn't been any movement 
of significance uh, around around the free agency space. And I do think it's interesting that they added this other nugget in this story, which is the Cubs came to Jake Arrieta with a big offer prior to signing Darvish. So now I wonder him turning that down may have been a mistake on his part because I wonder what that offer was and if he's going to be able to get it from someone else now that Darvish has signed. Yeah, well, I think that works both ways, right? I mean, um, whatever a quote-unquote big deal is, is is never going to be, I think, fully understood, Um, although it might leak out. um, Whether it's better than what Darvish got is is largely the question. Um, But I think that it does it does provide an opportunity for Arietta now to go, look, um, here's the market, right? So you just saw what Darvish got. You heard that, and you can read that um, the, the Cubs were there making me an offer. So for everybody else out there, you kind of get an idea of what the market was set for me and what my, you know, my former team has to offer me or current team or whatever, however you want to frame it. And it's probably so nobody's on nobody's roster, but, um, I, I do think that it's it's one of those things that does lay itself out for him to get, I think, a uh, reasonable, if not um, similar, something very close to it. I thought the Darvish deal was interesting in a number of senses, in the sense that um, it provided um, a kind of a window into how some of these deals, I think, are going to get structured now. Um, I, I'm really interested mostly now in terms of the contract length that you're seeing around pitchers and whether there really has to be incentives involved with them to really fully flesh out the total amounts that a, a player may be ultimately seeking. You're just not going to get a flat-based deal that says X amount of years and total dollars without incentives and without other um, durations within that contract um, to allow it to work for both the club and the player itself. So there's just so much risk around pitchers now and I think that the, the risk is certainly at the length of them creates all kinds of problems in terms of getting value at the tail end of them. And that's been a large part of the conversation, I think, around all of us that are watching um, the industry right now. It's just how far out, how long can some of these contracts get to get to total dollar amounts? And I think that there was finally a reset here, whether that was due to um, the current labor deal, whether it was... Um, due to uh, maybe not necessarily a lackluster class, but certainly looking at next year how how much better that class will be. Um, things certainly with the luxury tax with the Yankees and the Dodgers looking to get back under the luxury tax threshold. And then, of course, whether there are just some teams that are sitting on the sidelines going, you know, we just, we're, we're in a position where we're, we're having to retool. And for that, I, I certainly look at, at teams like the Tigers are, are certainly one of those teams. Not all. I mean, there should be teams, um, as I look at, I, I'm, I'm thoroughly frustrated with the Pirates at this point. Um, and because there was a team that I thought should have actually done something, not just last season, but the season prior, and they've decided yeah. instead to unload. So, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's really been a very odd offseason. I, I, I don't know whether we look at this as an anomaly or whether we have to look at this and, and have more of a, um, a larger sample size to see what this is really all about. So it's still unclear whether or not this is like the new norm for the offseason in baseball. We just don't know yet. And a lot of it, like you said, with the free agent class next year, maybe that will be the biggest indicator of 
what the future of these uh, Major League Baseball offseasons are, is how teams react to the Bryce Harpers of the world and just all the different uh, free agents that are going to be available next year. Well, I think the biggest thing to look at is that for the longest time, this idea was is that if you wanted that talent, whoever that talent was, if you were in the 85, you know, 80 to 85, you know, 87 win bell curve right, right in there, that's normally a point where a, a general manager is going to say, okay, look, I'm going to go to the owner now and we're going to see if we can get some more money to go ahead and do something. And then that, of course, really becomes dependent upon what the market is doing. And those markets have been set so wildly on occasion, right? I mean, we've just seen deals continue to escalate into more years of higher dollars, and that becomes a norm. That becomes the market. And at some point, somebody along the line must have gone, you know, or, or some of these clubs are going, yeah. I don't know if it's really worth it to us to go out and, and outlay that kind of money for a player that at the end of that contract life is going to pretty much be in their full-blown decline. So we can look at Darvish, right? Who's 31 right now. What's a six-foot deal? Like how, let's just imagine this to its full extent at the end of it. Um, I, I don't imagine you Darvish is going to be very good at age 37. I mean, there were some numbers that dropped off this past season that would give one pause already. But there have been so many clubs that have said, you know what, for the right now, that player right now that is available is going to give us what we need in the near term. And we'll deal with the tail end of this when that time arrives and leap off that bridge. Honey. <clears throat> so um, I, I, I do wonder, um, certainly with how the Cubs retooled and how the, the Astros retooled, whether we have a bunch of like thinkers. And this is, happens every World Series, but having two in a row where you had basically roster reconstruction that ripped it down to basically, you know, the floorboards and basically said, let's go ahead and do this through development. That's got to scare the pants off the, the players association. Because yeah. it, it, I think it has, right? Well, because that's why they're like, Tony Clark is just saying that like, is, there's this race to the bottom problem now. And I, I think there is ammunition to that argument. Well, but also, it works, and that's like he doesn't have the facts on this. It's unfortunate because, as you just pointed out, the last two teams to win World Series did the teardown and did the tanking and did everything the way that a lot of these teams are operating now, Because and it paid off. Yeah, and so here's the thing that, that always is difficult, right? If you go to most any fan base, and if I said, look, here's the deal. Your, your team is going to go out, and they're going to spend a bunch of money right in the offseason, and they're going to go after – you know, at least some of these free agents. But the rest of your roster really hasn't aligned in terms of its development. The rest of your players just, you know, either some of them haven't developed to their full potential yet, so they haven't aligned with your free agent signings, or some of your free agent signings prior are now starting to hit decline. So you don't have everybody hitting on the same cylinders. And I could get you to maybe be within a game or two of the wild card and maybe make the wild card and never, never move forward. Or... I could have you go into a position to where it would be absolutely horrible for three or four seasons, but in that fifth and sixth and seventh season, you would have a team that would not only get you past the wild card, but get you to potentially the World Series and winning it. Which would you take? And that is the this is the conundrum, right? I think a lot of fans would absolutely go, look, if that were for the Astros, and I'm going to go through that pain then watching substandard or watching, you know, teams that are going to sit in the middle of the pack or still at the end and they're blowing money and they're still not doing anything. 
Look, we've got a number of teams out there that are habitually bad. And it's not, I don't think, always from lack of trying. They've had some general managers that haven't been the greatest. I can certainly look to the Seattle Mariners, where their, their farm system has yeah. been deplorable under um, the prior general manager. Now, Joe DePoto is doing all these moves that I don't think have really turned into much. And, and they're just stuck in this perpetually bad state. The Pirates are another one. The Reds are another one. They're very cute. To be fair to the Pirates, though, they got really unlucky. Even those years, they were really good, and getting the like losing all the wild card games that they did. I, I do feel bad for the Pirates because I do feel like they gave it a real shot, but they didn't go all in a couple of years ago when they did. But I mean, they won ninety games, and I, I think theirs is a little bit more unfortunate and just bad well, luck. So, and, uh, to me, when I look at them, because I've been looking at them for so much long, longer than this, right? And they've yeah. just had a perpetual. So there's also these culture right where okay yeah you know they had this and they were close and they kind of unlocked out and they kind of did luck out but then when they had an opportunity right when they're starting to fill the ballpark then you go well i'm sorry we're going to go ahead and we're just going to go ahead and trade some key pieces here you know that mm-hmm. i don't i don't think that 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 lends itself well and this is the problem this race to the bottom thing in my mind and if i talk to a lot of a lot of fans, and even those that follow the game closely that are analysts, they will sit there and they'll go, you know, if you really think about it, there were a handful of really good teams, and then a lot of average teams, and there's a bunch of bad, and and that is never in my mind something that makes for um, a, a quality situation in terms of being able to sustain your um, fan interest. This is mm-hmm. this is a. The one good thing for the league, the league will say, well, look, we've had all these different teams go ahead and make the postseason. And this is absolutely true. And I would yeah. say, you know, kudos to the league for setting up a system that has had that. The bad thing about it is, is that um, you, you have a situation where there are some teams that have just been perpetual laggards. Um, certainly the situation in Miami has not been good. And I can't play right now. I can't blame Derek Cheater and the ownership of the Marlins for having to do what they're doing. They've understood that they were underwater and they had an unsustainable model. It's just this bad timing. But I can look around at others and go, you know, why why do we have this perpetual um, bad play? I mean, you know, once again, I'm going to pick on the Reds or I pick on the Mariners. Why why is that? Well, you can look at San Francisco and you can go, they, they perpetually pack it out. They stunk last year, and I don't think that they're going to sink this year. They have the ability to go ahead and do this. There are just some clubs that are in a better position than others. And so this idea that we are all of a sudden, wow, you know, this offseason, everything all hits at once, I, I just don't find that. I think that what we found is that there's a, a, a heated debate about whether your value of putting your eggs into your prospects and then wrapping up that, those prospects as they're either under club control or when they hit salary arbitration is a better investment than investing in free agency. And as the yeah. cost of free agencies continues to go up and those contract links, links continue to get into decline years, I can make a pretty solid case if I'm on the management side, if I'm on the club side, that I would rather do that. I would rather, I would rather take my risk up front and go, all right, guys, and sit down with my scouts and my analytics people and go, okay, this prospect that you're talking about right here, is he really going to be a guy that we can go ahead and invest in and, and, and get money to now? And I would rather put the risk on that and get an Evan Longoria out of the deal than, say, you know, some of these other ones. I don't know if I want to have Albert Pujols. 
you know, I don't know if I'd want to be saddled with an albatross contract like that. And, and we're watching teams have to dig out from underneath those, whether it's been the Yankees or whether it's going to be the Tigers or whether we saw the Phillies. The Phillies are just now coming out of their downturn. And the league has set up a system that works. Manfred has told me, and, and if you talk to a lot of other people, they'll tell you, they're like, everybody should be in a five-year cycle. They should be in a position after five years of development to be in a, in a competitive state. And they should be able to hang there for a, a, a period of time. Now, high-revenue clubs are going to be able to maybe hang in that position longer than low-revenue clubs, but everybody should have a shot at it. And I think, to me, the larger problem you know, with baseball right now isn't necessarily the Dodgers, the Yankees not spending, or the, the Red Sox, or whoever it is, it's some of these other clubs that have been um, perpetual laggards. And, and that, I think, is the larger problem. I would agree. And I do feel bad because, you know, there are about 10 teams that are trying to lose this year. And you think about it, it's like a third of the league is not even thinking about the playoffs anytime soon. And they they want to lose. That You think that can't be good. If you're looking at your league and you're like, a third of this league is actively trying to be terrible this year. But then you think about like the Cubs landing Darvish. And I don't know if this is recency bias, but I loved this postseason maybe more than any postseason in my lifetime i just had so much fun watching these it just seems like there's so many stacked teams at the top that every series was very intense and just just seeing the nationals and the cubs and the dodgers and just all these different teams going for it 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 felt like the bunch of stacked teams together and the series just felt more meaningful and they felt more important and I, I don't know, like the, I mean, I didn't even mention the Indians and just all of these different teams that are just going all in right now. And their rosters are so well constructed and all these smart teams. And I, I think it's good for the playoffs, but I think it's bad for the regular season. Is that fair? Well, I think that that's certainly that, you know, there was the, the benefits of the wild card, right? The, the, you know, nobody enjoys sitting and watching you know, division races where, you know, whoever's in first is, you know, 10 or 15 games up on, on everybody. And it's just basically sitting there for two and a half or three months and having that. And then the wild card, yeah. had the initial addition to it and now the second one has added some interest to the regular season. Look, there are individuals like you or I that can sit there and watch baseball every single day and then you'll find something amazing about it. The, the bad thing is sitting there, if you are interested in wins, right, and you're interested yeah. in, in, in that sort of thing, it's very difficult if you have teams that, that don't consistently, or when I say consistently, within a five-year window, right, start to be competitive. And that is, that is a problem. I won't say kind of, you know, this race to the bottom thing, I really have to, to look at, right? So if I'm the Tigers and I was in – violation of the, of the debt rule that I had basically leveraged myself so greatly to try and field a team and came, you know, precariously close, right? Got to the World Series, couldn't quite get it, couldn't quite make it happen. And and then and, and then you're sitting there with those contracts that come along with that investment. When you drop the hammer and you go and you're like say the Cubs or you're like say the Angels and you go and invest in an album pool. So you make those investments, those long-term investments, those come with some consequences that come along with that. And your mm-hmm. ability to get out from underneath that um, 
takes either some really painful action where you unload it and then you come back in. It's very hard to rotate in and out. It's just exceptionally difficult to go. It it takes other players involved to not only unload contracts, but to have someone take them. So Mm -hmm. the ability to try and remain sustainable, sometimes it's just easier to go, you know, we're just going to eat this. We're going to go ahead and, and either slowly go down. Like if I look at the Yankees, which were the most interesting model for the longest time, right? It was one of those things that was fairly sustained um, for a period of time uh, on the bedrock of initial development um, of the core four. And then outside of that, that worked with some pieces that were developed, but a large part of it was through free agency. And they were able to continue to sustain that sort of thing. And you had, you had, but you only had two teams, really. You had the Yankees and the Red Sox who were really kind of doing it. You certainly had the Cardinals going about it their way. But for the most part, it was this two guys in the ring going at it, and they were battling it out. Well, that is no longer the case. There really has been a a situation to where there has been more um, competitive parity around all this, which is, of course, really good for for the league. I mean, thank goodness for the media rights explosion and two billion dollar T V deals for the Rangers and two billion dollar deals for the Angels and you know, money to go around for everybody provided a little bit of that to happen. But what of and course teams what, don't need to sell tickets at the door. Like they have like you're talking about the MLB T V and everything else where the broadcasting rights is just, is so important too that they can make money even if they're not making it at the gate with teams coming to see them in person. Well so a big part so this is a really important thing, right? Because your your gate ebbs and flows with your how well you do in the standings. This, this kind of makes sense, right? If you're winning, people have an interest. Um, and you're, you're obviously your season ticket sales flow around that. So you used to live and die by that. And now, of course, you have a little bit of a cushion with your media rights. I mean, let's not deny the fact that attendance is still really important. But once again, all this extra money that is flown in has allowed some clubs to have more flexibility. So if you look at certainly Cleveland, right, is a good example. For the longest time, they just could not make things happen. And I remember talking to Mark Shapiro when he was a general manager. And we talked about an entire conversation around risk associated with pitching. And this ability to, you have to scout, and your scouting has to be so good, and your ability to develop has to be really great, and your ability to have sustainable and, and serviceable arms has to be there. And if you make a mistake at any one of those points, you then really you can be saddled with a with a decision or something that just didn't pan out for a long period of time as you had limited re, uh, revenues to work from. So this allowed some of these teams to do this. You know, the, the Yankees or certainly the the Red Sox, the Dodgers now, and some of these large revenue making clubs have always had this ability to cover for some of their mistakes and be able to do things with it. And that's now moved a little bit, which once again plays back into our cold um, stove situation right now. And what must be thoroughly frustrating for the Players Association, they understand that there are teams that have the ability to do this more often. And yet here we see a situation where that isn't happening. And I think that it's much like, you know, once catchers and pitchers start to report, look, it it doesn't take a dummy to sit there and go, you know, if we sit there and wait till spring training rolls up, We'll be able to get some of these guys on uh, on, a, on a better deal, 
and being the first ones to jump out. And so it is a different dynamic than we've seen in the past. And, and once again, I don't know, you know, there's an awful lot of them hanging out there when you've got so many that you've got to set up a 31st spring training camp, then, then that presents a real problem. And, and for the, for the players association, and once again, I think that it, none of it speaks to collusion. I think it just really speaks to the changing landscape and how we're kind of looking at what, what is valuable and what kind of investments those clubs need to make. Yeah, and I think it's kind of like what you said, where we're still, there's just this disconnect with the agents and with those players and with um, these front offices. And I think J.D. Martinez might be now the best example of this, where he's just like, you've seen the reports that he's just fed up with the Red Sox, and the Red Sox have kind of had an awkward offseason, especially with the Hosmer Mm -hmm. stuff and everything else. And, you know, I, I can imagine these guys' frustration, and I wonder if he's going to eventually get to the point where he prioritizes getting his money now. And I think this might be the biggest thing with these older free agents who finally hit free agency is that they're going to have to prioritize money now and sacrifice years because I think a lot more teams are going to be willing, especially the teams that are like on the board, like the Brewers and stuff. Like you know, the Brewers if they could sign JD Martinez to like, or this was prior to trading for Christian Yelich or whoever, but like teams like that where they're wild card ish teams. I mean, even the team that he was just on this past year, the Dimebacks who I've just been baffled aren't going all in on bringing him back because they're basically in one number and they had this great year and they're kind of built for going on another run. And they have been kind of cool uh, towards uh, signing JD Martinez and they're kind of okay not having him, but now he's, back to flirting with the Diamondbacks. So it's just this weird dynamic, and all these teams are just so wary of signing guys like Martinez to long-term deals that I wonder what kind of deal he's going to get if it's like, what if he just gets like a two-year deal or one of the U Darvish types where he can opt out or the team can get out of it after a couple of years. So I think that's probably where we're headed, right, is teams are get contracts are going to get more complicated. There's going to be more outs for teams so they don't fall in the, like the Seattle Mariners situation with like Robinson Cano and like what the Angels did with Pujols and just teams like that are looking for ways to protect themselves. And that hurts the players because they want that. They want the 10 year deals. They want the money. And Robinson Cano earned it because he was really awesome prior to that. And Pujols and all these guys, they still earned it. But at the same time, it's a terrible long-term investment. And bringing it back to you, Darvish, it's like, we don't think he's going to be worth it at 37. We don't know what it's going to look like, but it's probably not going to be great. And it, the reason he signed this deal probably is because I think the Cubs, you would think feel pretty good about him opting out after next year. And if that's the case, then they're okay. But at the same time, do teams value these guys if they think they can win a title, but the Cubs already got it. So the Mariners and the twins, do they, that's why the twins are interested. Like if we get Darvish and we eat these bad years, is it worth it if we get a World Series ring out of it? And I think maybe that's the new thing. It's like, do teams take this risk just so they can get one ring to say it was all worth it, kind of like the Royals, and go through this, like you said, this five-year cycle all over again, but it's going to be pretty painful. And, uh, yeah. Well, so I think the, the big thing to, to kind of um, – I, I, I think the one thing that, that – if I was to sit down and go, all right, well, what would be the best way to construct a roster? And in my mind, it would be um, you would develop, you would put a lot of effort into your development and your and your prospects, right? And then you would selectively go out into free agency and do it. 
and it's that selectivity, right? I mean, there's this idea that um, whatever you're going to make your investment in, is it enough? Is it going to be whatever the dynamic is within the contract they're able to get it going? Is that the component that you need? Are you going to need to do more? Do we have more money coming in? Are we, how is the rest of our roster developing in line with the money that we're going to invest? Everything is within the context of where you are in terms of the season that you're in, in front of, or, or even during the season. Where are we now? Where are we in a month? Where are we in this season? Where are we in five years or three years or one year? However it is, you're looking at this long-term view. You're trying to give yourself flexibility to think about not just this season, but the season after. If you're looking at it in terms of, well, we've got these players that we're developing. They're not quite there yet, you know, within the next year or two. You know, so we got to try and kind of move along. Of course, we're here now. We have to do what we have with now. How, when do we make the investment? How do we go about that investment? And those are all the things. And then you kind of mentioned the years, right? And and that has been, I think, the largest problem is that um, it, it, the contract dollars keep going up. But to have flexibility, you can't stuff a bunch of money within the years. I constrain my years. My average annual value for my contracts are going to go up. The player is going to go I want a deal that's going to be guaranteed money for if this is my last year or last contract like Darvish. That's why three years works for Darvish. Darvish will sit there and say, you know what? I, I'm, I'm feeling really good about myself. Maybe the market will look better in two years. And then I can yeah. get my last deal of my, that's my last contract. And I have to think about that in terms of whatever I'm going to get. This is going to be the one that's going to be my breadwinner. This is what I'm going to have to basically live on them for the rest of my life and so you always get that push and pull that that the player is always going to probably depending upon their age is going to see the maximum number of years to try and get out of it and of course the club is going we don't want max years we want you know what if we give you more money well that's not going to be any good because you don't you know i don't know how i'm going to be in terms of this i'd rather think about it in terms of the long term stability of this and you, you really do get into this i'm thinking about my quote unquote mom. i'm thinking about the family right everybody laughs about that are you kidding me you know 20 million dollars you can't live on that but it really does kind of get into that logic and there is always the when that money goes in where the rest of our the rest of those years are wind up and look AAV is not a measure of what the actual contract dollars will be per year that'll eventually come out once it's filed with the players association in the league, and we'll see whether it was front-loaded or back-loaded, or whether it's evenly spread out over the years, what those incentives are about. And you do start to get into those kind of things, where it's like, all right, if you're a pitcher, or if you're a player that's maybe had injuries, you start to stick incentive clauses in there. Coming back, I, I have to touch on Canelo. Canelo's actually was like, has been pretty dang on good for what he is. The problem has always been that there haven't been the other pieces for the Mariners around them. Certainly Felix mm-hmm. Hernandez is, has been in a steady decline and they're hamstrung yeah. by paying him you know, a large sum of money for, of course, when they thought that they were going to have those other pieces around them and they could know and, and certainly Cruz were going to be those pieces around there and they just had some players that haven't panned out. Now, they seem to have their outfield sorted out. I, I certainly or the corner outfield sort of that. I don't know what D Gordon playing center field is going to be like, but I mean, those are the kind of problems that you get into where the, the 
tearing it down quickly and the pain, it's like pulling the bandaid off. I know that I, I know that when I do this, it's going to, it's going to be difficult, but I can figure out where I have in terms of my player development. I'm sticking all my eggs into that basket and those players will all develop pretty much on a similar arc. And then it becomes mm-hmm. a lot easier. I mean, we're doing really good. There's going to be some guys that don't pan out, we'll some other guys up, and then it's more selective instead of this hodgepodge of, I've got these long-term deals here where I invested heavily in some, you know, extremely expensive commodity, and now my pitching staff is not where it needs to be, or I, you know, or we can't seem to build around it and push guys around, which is a perpetual problem for the Mariners. Just can't seem to hit, get runners in scoring position and and push them around the bases. This is the perpetual problem with roster development in terms of coming back to KD Martinez. So this is one of these things where I'm sure that the, the Red Sox have said, here's the offer, and it's not really what he wants, right? And then they get stuck, and the closer you get to spring training, of course, the more frustrated it is. I'm sure that there's an agent sitting there, right? And we know who that agent is. It's sitting there going, you know what? If you start to get this out there that you're frustrated, then everybody's going to go, all right, there's a feeding frenzy. I can get back into it. As far as the Diamondback goes, they're sitting there wondering about their ballpark, I think, is, is a key problem that just sits looming in the background that they're trying desperately to get sorted out or move out of. And so mm-hmm. you just have all of these moving parts that I think are, are one of the, the most difficult thing about this. The Twins are obviously, if you look at them, they go from like worst to the playoffs, right? And doing yeah. that and being able to make that happen, of course they're going to be a team to move. I think the Brewers are looking at at the NL Central and going, you know, maybe the Cardinals are a little dinged up. Maybe the Cubs, you know, aren't going to be that team. And now is our time to move. And you're always looking at what others are doing to find out when is that time to spend those valuable commodities to try and do it. Normally there's always somebody ready to do something, but I think that some of these clubs have figured out that when to spend and just spending for the sake of spending is, can be inefficient and ineffective and really become an albatross around their neck. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that there's some of them going, you know what, we're willing to, you know, we're, we're not doing much better sitting here how we are, which is a no man's land. Yeah. I had this conversation with um, other, <clears throat> other writers, and we talk about this thing called a, a commitment problem. And the commitment problem is, do you have your feet in two pools? I, I, I kind of dabble in the free agency space, and I'm kind of dabbling in terms of player development, but I won't commit to either one. And what that does is it makes them kind of semi-mediocre. And I, I, you either commit wholeheartedly one way or another in that sort of thing, and you're, you're liable to come out on a better end of it if you make that commitment. But it's very hard. But a lot of that goes to there's multiple people involved there where it's like the owner and the general manager or the owner might say they commit early on and then they're like, oh, no, we don't want to do this long term. And they change course. And it's so sometimes we don't even really know who to blame when teams go back and forth in this commitment issues. Like I'm sure most front offices would want to stick to one or the other, but that's not the only person involved here. And there are other people that interject and change gears. And it's really hard to stay on course. I think it's kind of an underrated thing is to kind of keep the peace for several years. And I'm sure it was difficult for Theo Epstein to do what he did in the major market in Chicago with the Ricketts family, right? Like he had to no, like sell them on. It's going to be, it's going to pay off. I promise it's going to pay off, but um, owners and 
rich people, I don't think, um, especially when this is just like their toy, they don't want to just sit around and oversee this horrible franchise for years and years. Like they, it's easy to get antsy and I can see why they do. And I can see why it happens. And it, I think it's an underrated thing to, uh, keep the peace and keep one direction for, like you said, this five year cycle. Well, the discipline is the core thing. And there yep. are some, there are some owners that are disciplined in, in a, in a, inefficient, um, ineffective, maybe efficient to their bottom line matter. I can certainly look at Peter Angelos and the Baltimore Orioles as a good example of a team that is just kind of there. I mean, you know, you're sitting there with, you know, here they were in a position to where they were looking competitive and then it just languishes. And here they go. They can't move. They, they, they're, you know, we're asking for the moon and the stars remaining Machado and you're sitting there and you're going to pray that you can get some kind of value out of him at the deadline because otherwise he's just going to walk. And, and so, Are we sure he's going to walk? I think that, it, well, certainly he'll walk at the end of this. I mean, he's going to be a free agent. And so you don't want, what you don't want, to, what you want to do is get value for players when there's still value in them and not have a position to where they're, the player is in a, in a higher position of power to dictate yeah. the terms. And Machado is going to be that guy I, I, I thought that there would be a case where they would move him in the offseason, and they didn't. Um, you see other teams, you know, moving players at a, at a particular given point, and, you know, I, I, once again, I look at, at Pittsburgh and, and how they move pieces. And there are other teams that are, have been, you know, actually, I think, you know, very good at this. I mean, the Cardinals have been exceptionally good at this, and everybody jokes about, you know, well, when you – Hack a database, you can kind of get away with that sort of thing. But I think that, that I think that, that that's obviously grossly o- overstated. You know, they're they're yeah. exceptionally good at being able to retool. The Giants have been another team that just have been able to do things and move things along in a pretty expeditious manner. Um, certainly, the Yankees are are they developed their talent. That was the biggest knock on Brian Cashman for the longest time. It's like, oh, well, you know, when you have a bunch of money, you don't have to really do this. And he, I think he was really champing at the bit to try and prove that he could, you know, do well under the player development model. Now, granted, you know, come on. I mean, you still have the second highest payroll in baseball. But the, the talent that they have right now, they, they were a scary-looking team. And... Yeah, I was just reading this. And they still have moves they can make. <laughs> they still have Clint Frazier, and they still have all these guys that can still move, and they can still get better. Yes. And, well, and this is the other thing. Someone threw out there that J.D. Martinez could wind up going to the Yankees, and that would be, mm-hmm. I don't know why. I mean, it's like, come on. You, I mean, it's like overkill. But there is that idea and that notion that when the Yankees are in a position, they would push them right to the envelope of the, of the luxury tax. And I think that they, that is really so painful now that and the fact that it, getting back under it would reset them to the 20% tax rate instead of being 50% yeah. with surcharges for being multiple offenders, that getting back underneath that, and then they can go whole hog if they want to go after, I don't know, or if they want to go after Harper. Now, I don't know why you would need to go after Harper now, since you wound up having Stanley in your lab, but it does, it, it does kind of talk about how some of these teams are able to do that. Um, I've been in, you know, I, it's just interesting that some of the teams that have been movers have been teams that have traditionally not been them for a, a, a period of time. The Rockies are certainly making some moves, which for the longest time, they just didn't seem that, but they're here. They were, 
you know, you make it to a position of making the playoffs, that's when you would yeah. expect your owner to do something. So, you know, it, it's, um, it's a lot more complex, I think, than just saying, oh, there's a bunch of owners that are looking to um, get even greedier still. I don't ever put that past them. Um, I just, as I wrote about today in the Fairly Lincoln piece, it just doesn't feel like 1985 to me. I spent a lot of time um, looking into that and writing about it. I wrote about it for one of Rob Meyer's books. And it, it was just a different period of time. The, the, the um, business landscape was not nearly as robust, certainly, as it is now. Um, it, it just feels a lot different. But what, what is odd, uh, I would say, is only that there have been some authors that are so like in their um, structure that you go, this is kind of weird. You know, this club and that club, they're all given my same guy, the same, pretty much the same author. That seems pretty much cookie cutter. That must be collusion. And I, I'm not so sure about it. But, you know, it, it is one of those um, interesting points in time. I don't recall, I, I don't ever recall, <laughs> except for in the 80s, <laughs> a period of time like this. And that was a very bad that 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 period for baseball. I I dare say that if that actually does come to light and it would require a smoking gun, which I think would be very difficult um, right about now, given there's so many ways to hide around all the mechanisms that are in place around the, the labor agreement, um, that if that were to happen, it would, it would once again be horrifically damaging to the game. So I would hope that um, Rob and, and Dan Halem and, and, the owners would be smart enough to not go down that road. And I'd rather them focus on other important things like speeding the game up 10 minutes every game. <laughs> oh, we could, go, we could go an hour on that. It's never been. Oh, I, yeah. It's not. It's I think not. we could go an hour on everything, man. This has been really fun. I think we could talk about baseball all day, to be honest. Yeah. So uh, I'll just touch on that real quick. It has never been about the length of games, although they would use the length of games as a measuring stick to try and basically look at the inner workings of how the game goes is the pace of play is that that pace thing is the key component which in other words a two hour and ten crisp game or a three hour crisp game or a four hour crisp game is better than a two hour and ten minute you know boring game in my mind i think that Mm -hmm. john thorne who's mlb's historian official historian and an, an amazing individual if you ever get a chance to meet him or talk to him said it this way, more of a good thing is good. In other words, if you have good quality play that is moving along at a pretty steady clip, then that's good. It's not about trimming time, per se. To me, there's nothing more boring than a bunch of mound visits. I mean, it's just it's like, yes. get your calls straight and, and get that sorted out. There's nothing more boring. I mean, the minute we, I, I will never forget, man, that when watching No More Versus Prayer, it was it was really fun, right? One of maybe the death of baseball was Velcro. And being able to, you know, I gotta, even though I didn't take a hat, I got to go in there and I got to do my gloves and I got to tap my toes and I got to do my routine to get myself and my mindset to step in the box. Well, come up with a better routine. And so uh, some of it is the enforcement of the rules. I'll be interested to see. I've watched, I've watched a number of games where there's a clock, a pitch clock in place. And I'm serious. After about two innings at a game where you can see it, you completely forget about it. And on television, it goes away even faster. You just, you'll know yeah. it because you're a baseball fan. You go, oh, now the clock's in play. 
what's going to happen when they don't do this or that. But at, when the game is moving, look, a large percentage of the players that are now in the league have all worked under a pitch clock because it's been in the yeah. minors. So yeah, if you go to a minor league game, you don't ever think about it. No, I go to a lot of minor league baseball games. You don't notice it. No, you don't. And so once again, I think the big thing will be, um, I I know that that Rob is going to use the amount of time to basically get around having to unilaterally pull something on the players. Which of course, right now isn't probably a smart move given how tense things are, but it does provide um, a mechanism by which they will let the players basically police themselves. And so I, you know, I I think that that is going to be that'll be the next chapter for your next podcast. There you go. Well, I think we should definitely. Uh do another one because this is fun i think we have a lot more things to unearth and uh you know i this is going to be interesting and we'll uh we'll see what happens with the rest of this offseason if jd martinez gets a long-term deal if eric hosmer just never gets signed or the royals give him a 35-year deal just to bring him back um who knows we don't know <laughs> but maury i really appreciate you taking the time we can find you on twitter at bisball more we can read you at forbes and uh yeah is there anything else you want to plug before we get out of here no, no, just uh, I would say that um, it'll be uh, it, there'll be obviously a lot more around uh, baseball here. This, you know, the off season has been kind of slow, so I've been throwing it with some other stuff. So um, I'm looking forward to my uh, my entering my third year as a BBWA member, and so spending more time at the ballpark is a lot more fun than um, and then talking about what what's not happening. I would agree. Well, we're very close pitchers and catchers report soon so we're almost there and uh we uh let's talk again soon man all right man thank you so much and that'll do it for today's episode of the chase thomas podcast i just want to remind you guys if you like today's episode and you are subscribed on apple podcast or itunes i would really appreciate if you could take a second leave the show a five-star rating and a review if uh, you're not an apple podcast listener remember you can find the show on spotify TuneIn radio soundcloud stitcher Google Play or wherever else you get your podcasts, uh, be sure to check out chasethomaspodcast.com where you can access all of my previous episodes and also find all my writing. I'm writing there fairly often. And also follow me on Twitter at chase underscore Thomas and like the Facebook page at facebook.com slash chase Thomas writer. Uh, thank you for your support and we'll be back with another episode very soon. Thanks guys. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.